This is Channel 253. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable. White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. It is our privilege and honor to have on our show today Dr. Robin D'Angelo. She has a PhD in multicultural education from the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, she's a two-time winner of the Student's Choice Award for Educator of the Year at the University of Washington School of Social Work. She is al- also the author of White Fragility, the most recent Read Less Basic book club book, uh, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Uh, it came out in 2018, and she also wrote a couple other things, including What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Literacy. We are so excited to have her on the show. We're so excited. And you are going to love this conversation. And you're also going to walk out of this uh, being really challenged to be less basic. And if you didn't do your homework and read the book, now you have to. You don't have a choice. Interchangeable. White ladies. Awesome. Well, we're so happy that you um, joined us this morning. And thank you for sacrificing um, the home fries and your cabin time <laughs> um, to talk with us and help us uh, kind of unpack some of these issues. So we recently um, just did a book club. We have a book club called Read Less Basic. And we read your book, White Fragility. And so we recently had a couple of guests come in and kind of talk about the things that impacted them from your book and kind of where they're going next or places that they're challenged. And so a bunch of our questions today are around some of the issues issues that were brought up in our discussion and some of the things we wanted to ask you a little bit more about. And we actually were really fortunate. We had a lot of our social media followers contribute questions. So some of the questions we have are from our listeners. Great. And um, I just want to make sure everyone knows that we just completed a reader's guide and it's oh. just so good. Cool. Excellent. It lays out common dynamics that happen even in talking about white fragility, right? And how to recognize them, how to work with them. And then really good questions for every chapter. And that is free and can be downloaded from my website. So just FYI. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we wanted to start a little bit first with um, talking a little bit with you about just the concept of white studies. When I was reading some of the information about your background, um, what exactly is white studies and what does that entail? Oh, I'm already happy that you're not asking me how I came to do this work. (laughs) Thank you for a question I find very interesting. Actually, it's whiteness study, and it came out of uh, around the 80s, where traditionally, um, you know, across history, when people study race, and let's be clear, white academics studied race, Mm -hmm. we studied them. And as long as we were doing that, they were saying, why don't you look at yourselves? You are, in fact, our problem. Um, And around the early 80s or late 80s, early 90s, white academics began to take up that challenge and began to turn the lens onto uh, white racial identity, uh, whiteness, white Mm. supremacy. And lately, I've been finding it useful to try to define those terms. So Mm -hmm. we can think about whiteness is all the dynamics that go into the elevation of white people as the human ideal, Mm -hmm. as the norm for humanity. So all of the things that continually reproduce white supremacy across all the institutions. And then white privilege, of course, is one of the results of 
that of whiteness and the way that it supports white supremacy. And then what I have added is, and white fragility mm, is yeah. what happens when you challenge uh, white privilege and whiteness. So I kind of see this stack of these three mm. things leading into each other. So when you first started bringing um, bringing this up, especially the white fragility component back in the 80s, what kind of responses were you getting from folks? Were people pretty open? Um, were they not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me just say that everything I've learned to articulate about uh, white fragility, I pretty much learned by working with uh, white progressives in Seattle and Portland. <laughs> that says a lot. We usually ring a shame bell right about that time, so that's perfect. <laughs> I actually wasn't um, into the work until the 90s, um, and it probably took me another 10, 15 years before I could really articulate what I think of as white fragility. So when I first started, I'll be really honest, I was a classic white progressive. Mm -hmm. I had the classic oblivious, ignorant um, idea that racism was about, you know, close-minded um, bigots who yeah. consciously didn't like people based on race and intended to be mean to them, right. which perfectly exempted me and everyone I knew. Yeah. And as long as I was open-minded, you know, I wasn't, I couldn't possibly be racist and also uh, qualified to lead other people uh, in being open-minded like me. And so it was it was taking a job as a diversity trainer, as it was called in the mm. 90s, and just a parallel process of being deeply challenged by the people of color I was working with, like kind of a fish being taken out of water there, yeah. and then going into overwhelmingly white workplaces side by side with people of color, trying to talk to white people about uh, racism. And you, it, first, I, I was frozen in the face of it. Mm. it the resistance, the hostility, the defensiveness was jaw-dropping. Um, but years and years and years of it, I just got better and better. Uh, you know, my, my training in sociology kicked in and, you know, I have my own um, complicity uh, in socialization. And, you know, it's not like I didn't know the patterns. I just was fortunately beginning to challenge them within myself. Mm -hmm. So over time, I got very good uh, at speaking back to it. And after about five years of that, that's when I decided I've got to get my PhD. I've had an extraordinary uh, opportunity. Most white people uh, avoid talking about racism like the plague. And here I am, this is my job. So I went from practice to theory, unlike a lot of ac academics, right, who yeah. go from theory to practice. Yep. And so when I went into the academy, I got introduced to whiteness studies. Yeah. Right. But I had plenty to bring <laughs> to that examination. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. When you did diversity training in the 90s, in what industries did you see or feel the most pushback? Like what what arenas or areas did you feel that the most? Are there certain disciplines that were more hostile to what you were talking about or was there a specific? Yeah. I will tell you, I will not ever train police officers. Um, oh, would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? That was um, extreme. That was probably yeah. the, the worst. Wow. Um, and we, I had a friend in the police department who gave me a heads up that before some of these police would come into the trainings, they would um, kind of take bets about which one of, uh, of them could make us cry. Wow. 
And that's not that lightly. Like they, they came at us like they wanted to break us down. It's horrible. Um, now we, one of the reasons I won't work with police anymore, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, they need police hmm. and they need white male police because there's a very deep kind of group identity. Hmm. And one, we were outsiders and two, we were women. Yeah. Um, and some of us were women of color and they were not going to hear it from us. Hmm. Uh, so that, that that's kind of a firm boundary that I have, mm-hmm. but I'm going to, you know, straight up, uh, social workers, uh, teachers. Um, I don't know that there's a group of white people uh, outside of police who are more or less receptive. Mm-hmm. So- and mostly I, I worked, um, during those years with, um, the, the training I got hired for was the Department of Social and Health Services. Okay. So that that was intense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've had some experiences with white teachers who basically said, I never want that woman back in this building. That's mm. ridiculous. <laughs> um, um, so with the health, you mentioned health services. What were some of the challenges that you encountered there? Well, uh, Department of Social and Health oh, Services. And so health basically services. The, the welfare department. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm. Um. What were some of the challenges? Well, a lot of the white fragility I write about where I I think I open with a scene in which a black woman and I are standing in front of a room that is 100% white Mm -hmm. and people have arms crossed. uh, People will refuse to participate in any um, exercise. And a white man is literally pounding his fist on the table Mm -hmm. and shouting white people have been discriminated against for 25 years. So this was, you know, that trace that back. We're talking affirmative action. Right. Yeah. Um, They wrote things across the evaluations, like uh, just this training is shit, you know, just (laughs) very open. Um, (laughs) I'll never forget leaving an office, that office, and I was with a black woman and, you know, none of us ever really expressed the impact of that in front of them, mm-hmm. but many, many cheerful rides home. And I just remember this, the pain on this black woman's face and she actually stopped before she got in the car. And, you know, when you take your foot and you, you wipe it back on the ground, yeah. kind of kick back what's on your shoe. I mean, she kind of wiped her shoes back and got in the car, you know, just to get all of that hatred and anger and yeah. uh, defensiveness off of her. And I mean, there was a lot, a lot about it. But what I want to pull out was we don't understand uh, that we bring our histories mm-hmm. with us. Mm-hmm. So white people, um, we want to be seen as individuals, yep. unique individuals outside of, of our group's history. And this is especially relevant for teachers. Yes. Yeah. It is a history of harm. Mm. Our schools have not done well by children of color. There's no. just no denying. That is yeah. empirical. Yeah. And, and white parents are delivering their precious children into this institution um, that has done terrible by them. And so when they approach teachers with that rational 
mistrust. Many white teachers just take umbrage and get their back up. And how dare you assume that I would have bias towards your child rather than. Yeah. I absolutely understand why you would fear delivering your child into my classroom. Mm -hmm. And I want to work with you around that. And I want, you know, that's so different. Mm -hmm. I often use the example, if people know about the Citadel, which was an all-male military school Mm -hmm. uh, that only recently allowed women in. And if I was dropping my daughter off at the Citadel, I'd be right. freaked out. Right. And yeah. I would go to her male instructor and I'd be just like, you better watch out for my daughter. <laughs> yep. Right. Yep. And if he just responded with, to me with, you know, don't you get uppity with me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would not drive home relieved. Mm-hmm. But if said to me, I understand your concerns and I, you know, I would, oh, thank God. Right. I would relax. So, um, that I, I digress there, but I wanted to make the point that we bring that history with us and we yeah. are not going to just be seen as individuals. We're going to be seen as white teachers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And when I watch my black co-facilitator, you know, the impact that being the only person of color in a room standing in front of an irrational mm-hmm. mob of mm-hmm. white people, right. that invokes a history of terror. Yeah. That we part of being white is I don't have to know that terror. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to be thoughtful about it. You know, they just ran that outrage at her, and she was all alone. I mean, thank God she had me by her side. Um, but there was just so much insight I gained and around mm-hmm. that. And I wouldn't allow that today, but I, I have so much different weight and credibility and my own skills mm-hmm. uh, than I had in those early days. Yeah, mm-hmm. We actually had a question um, from one of our listeners around facilitating these conversations. And so, um, th- as you know, there's a lot of talk around um, anti-racist work needs to be led by people of color, black, indigenous, um, and other folks. And so uh, what is it like as a white woman kind of leading that work? And it sounds like you work a lot with um, side by side. So can can you speak a little bit to that tension in terms of leading some of the work or partnering with other folks and fighting um, white supremacy? Um, my ideal is side by side. Um, it absolutely. If we are not hearing and learning from the, the voices of people of color, we cannot ever understand this. Hmm. Um, and there is a dynamic where race work is given to people of color and only race work. Right. Uh, and, they are expected to do all of that heavy lifting and deal with all of that resistance and consistently left off the table when we do that, of course, is, is whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reinforces this idea as that race is what they have. Racial knowledge is what they have. Yeah. We don't have racial knowledge. We're racially innocent. So there are also some dilemmas. And there's going to be dilemmas about every single option I'm going to map out right now because there's no clean space. There's no space outside of white supremacy. Mm. Um, And the reality is uh, they will hear it a little more openly from a white person Mm. for a couple of reasons. One is unconscious implicit bias, Mm -hmm. right, Um, that is at play whether they're aware of it or not. And two, there is a way that I can name it as an insider that they cannot deny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it. I think about what I do is tilling the soil, right? Yeah. How do I soften that soil so that they can receive 
the teaching and the learning from people of color, yeah. right? And um, these are the situations in, I, in which I feel more comfortable doing it by myself mm. when I am not the only person they've ever brought in mm. and I won't be the only person they've ever brought in. Yeah, so when they, t- yes, we've had these three speakers, all people of color before you and now we're bringing you in. Okay, that, that I feel quite comfortable with that. Um, or I know that this isn't the only thing that they're going to do or what they want is what I do. They want a presentation on whiteness and white fragility. And Mm -hmm. and I feel comfortable doing that. But anymore, if I'm asked to do a full day, if I'm asked to do more than a half a day, I won't do it without a co-facilitator. That's way too much time um, without that voice. Yeah. I guess maybe the final thing I want to say, because I know this is an issue, particularly with, um, you know, the progressive left is... Um, I'm very clear that my work centers whiteness. I'm very clear that in standing up there, like every other teacher and expert and authority figure, pretty much any of us have ever had, um, I'm reinforcing whiteness and Mm. the centrality of the white voice. And to not use this position to do that, to use this position to break with white solidarity is for me to really be white (laughs) in the way that I was taught to be white. And I want to break with that. Hmm. And whiteness stays centered by not being named or exposed or marked. Mm -hmm. So it is a both end. Hmm. And I don't know that anything could not be a both end yeah. When we are using the master's tools <laughs> to dismantle the master's house, as Audre Lorde says. Yeah. So that's how I've come to terms with it. Um, at the beginning of any talk, I'm transparent about it. And there are a range of perspectives. And I'm well aware that there are people who don't think uh, that white people should be doing this. Yeah. Um, but if the overwhelming response I got from people of color wasn't, uh, appreciation for what I do, then, you know, I wouldn't do it, but clearly I don't agree that white people shouldn't be doing this work. And I try to do it as accountably as I can. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, you travel extensively recently to Australia. Um, do you see a contrast of white fragility in the United States versus other countries? Is it, um, better, worse, different? How, how have you experienced that elsewhere? Um, the, the history may be different, but the white fragility is absolutely the same. And I get um, emails from people all over the world, people of color, like, oh, my God, please come here and help me. Help <laughs> right. up these white people, help interrupt this. Um, and what the white people will do in those contexts is work to dismiss me because I'm not from their context. Ah, uh, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and... One, I do my homework before I go. Right. And two, yep. um, I name, I do the, as best I can, I name all the moves that white people are going to make before they make yep. them. So it's harder yeah. for them to make them. <laughs> right. That's so awesome. I just name that move. That's and a I great say, tactic. it yeah. is on you. It's on you to get skin in the game and uh, figure out what this looks like in your context because it is in your context. Right. 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 What, what did that and, look and like? Not, yeah. Not know every freaking nuance. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do know it's here. So, you know, you right. do the work, um, you know, yeah. trust me, it's here. Absolutely. So I don't see it. I just, um, 
Yeah, I um, the the difference more that I see is the degree to which white people are used to talking about racism, mm-hmm. and the degree to which they're in denial that it exists in their context. So, mm-hmm. so basically, everywhere I've been, white people say it's Americans that are racist, mm-hmm. and and it's an American problem, and we don't have that problem here. So, when you were in Australia, did what what racial dynamics there? were notable that you were able to point to and say, yes, you do have racism in Australia. Oh, um, their history with Aboriginal indigenous Mm -hmm. peoples is stunning. Mm. I believe it was only in the nineties where Aboriginal people were, um, they changed the language to list Mm. them as humans. It's extreme and you see it. Um, and so you, I have a slide on anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen me present? Yeah, yeah. we saw you um, last summer when you came to Tacoma at Urban Grace. Okay, so yeah. you did you see that anti-blackness slide? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. yeah, I just made it, and you know, uh, you know, what is what is um, state sanction? Oh yeah, discrimination yep. against indigenous peoples, and it, it's, mm. it's just as dense. Some of the stuff is the same, and then I, I would put in mm-hmm. some of their policies and things that were different than our policies and things, mm-hmm. but it's just as dense. And so that just kind of um, preempts the denial. And I did right. it when I went to Canada, also around Indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, and anti-Blackness is everywhere. Yeah. One thing that I noticed now, you know, I wasn't everywhere for a long time in Australia. I was there for a month. But I never saw a dark skinned aboriginal per, per person someone who you would see and absolutely recognize as aboriginal mm. from the white perspective i never saw someone like that in any institution mm. i saw them in the parks and i saw you know i saw mm. them um maybe performing for tourists but the colorism was really really explicit mm-hmm you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've talked a little bit on the show about colorism um, and and some of those issues. Yeah. So So the people that were in institutions that were identified as Aboriginal were either lighter skinned or um, I might not know that they were Aboriginal Mm. if they didn't identify that way. That's so interesting. Um, I mean, we see that dynamic in the States a little bit, um, you know, it has its own manifestation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break here and then um, we'll come back with a few more questions. Hey, Hope, I have the craziest story for you. Okay, what happened? I dreamed I booked a flight for my mom. With Alaska, right? Well, obviously, it was a dream, not a nightmare. <laughs> Ooh, you scared me for a second there. Yeah, so in my dream, I was trying to do something nice for her and I thought, I know, I'll give her the world. That seems a little expensive and stop, very stop, Aladdin stop. from it like, the 90s. It is my dream. I'll give her the world with the gift of travel. I can show you the world. So listen, in my dream, Michael B. Jordan was an Alaska Airlines oh, flight okay. attendant. This dream just went up yeah. all night. Uh-huh. Yep. Can I jump in that dream? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You were in it, and everyone we know was in it. Um, it was amazing, as you can imagine. So he was giving me fruit and cheese plate, and oh. he told me I gave the cheese plate to my the cheese part to my neighbor because you know vegan, but the fruit yeah. was divine. I so I, I told he told me, did you, did you know you can share your Alaska miles? Did you know that? Michael B. Jordan told me this in my dream. It's $10 <laughs> to share $10,000. Oh, that's not bad at all. That means that after saving up your miles, you could give your mom a round-trip ticket for less than $40 out of pocket. 
So that's like a really unknown secret, I think, and pretty yeah. amazing. How'd the dream actually end? Well, I woke up before it got really good. Oh, man. Bummer. But Alaska saved the day. I woke up and I shared my miles. That's really smart. I'm so glad it worked out. Hey, to book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. We, we fly Alaska. Alaska. Um, here we go. So a couple of the questions we wanted to ask you um, further were more kind of practical questions in terms of, um, well, actually, we have one political question we wanted to ask you first. And then a lot of folks were wondering about some kind of practical um, things that they can do to increase their racial stamina and just like addressing uh, these kinds of issues with their with their children or with their students. Uh, Annie, do you want to talk a little bit about the senator? Yeah. So uh, um, I'm sure if you've seen in the news this week, there was Mark Meadows. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, you I can I, stop right there. Yeah. Mark okay. Meadows. So we. Uh, when we were watching that coverage, Hope and I were walking that, watching that coverage. We were, we both we texted each other and we were like, "Oh wow, this is this is white fragility." And so we wanted to ask you about your perspective on that situation and how how does Mark Meadows fit into some of those tropes of white fragility? What uh, how is he a really stunning example <laughs> of white fragility? Because yeah, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. you, you kind of know, right? But yes. Um, Every hallmark, you know, let's let's just map it out. Check yes, all the boxes. Right. <laughs> um, and so let, let's make a big picture. I actually looking at those white, older white men. Yeah. And then you look at those younger women of color. Yeah. I, I don't think I, I was surprised that Mark Meadow even knew the term people of color. Like that's how <laughs> yeah. vacuum that they live in. And they are now being confronted with younger people of color who have kick ass analysis yeah. And we're going to just give them a run for their money, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that. You have the classic, classic definition of a racist yep. as someone who can't tolerate proximity to a person of color. Right. Hmm. And so... Um, He's like an old school racist, too. I mean, I was... <laughs> yeah. When you take that definition along, or, or that idea... You know, along with mm -hmm. a racist is an individual mm -hmm. who consciously mm -hmm. doesn't like people based on race, is intentionally mean to them and can't tolerate proximity. Then you see his evidence yeah. that I think in the first case, Trump couldn't be racist mm -hmm. is he actually could have an employee who's black. So we have that framework. He trots out an employee who's black. Yeah. who doesn't speak, who's a, a prop for his point. Mm. I mean, we could go on, but this idea that, and we put, this is how I think about it. Um, Harvey Weinstein is uh, a misogynist and a rapist. Yeah. And he's married mm. to a woman and he employs women and uh, he can stand near women and he uh, might not even rape every woman, uh, but he's sure in the hell. Um, is basically yep. a misogynist. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm this snapping in the studio here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. part, this absurd, ridiculous idea. I mean, you know, it, own, uh, people who owned enslaved human beings, you know, worked with them, lived with them, slept yeah. with them. So yeah. everything about that. And then, of course, to have her not speak and to be, oh, to be used in that way was just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, so then he gets called on it. That mm -hmm. even you doing that is racist, right? So now, now under here, and part of his reaction is the difference between impact and intent, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so he 
loses his mind, right? This must be stricken from the record. So the entire freaking thing has to come to a screeching halt for I don't know how long. It's like a tantrum. Go back and forth because his moral character has been, you know, and and he's bullying a a woman of color who, bless her, wasn't backing down. I mean, he kind of got her to at least say, I'm not saying you are racist. Yeah. Well, oh, although, let me be clear, he's racist. Uh, <laughs> but she also has to cover herself. Right, but, right. But she did not back down to what you did was racist. And it had a racist impact. Mm-hmm. Sadly, the chair, who is an elderly black man, yeah. um, you know, we can all collude with our own oppressions. Mm. <laughs> Kellyanne Conway. Oh, excuse me. I had something to me. <laughs> um, you know, he unfortunately bought into the narrative that Mark Meadows is his friend. And, um, you know, he has an older um, and, and at the risk of maybe offending, I think he's more assimilated hmm. um, and probably more uh, conditioned into keeping white people comfortable um, for him to even be where he is at his age. So we also had that dynamic. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Of collusion. Yeah. I don't know. Was, is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, That's perfect. Well, and also, I mean, the, the comments after also that he said, I have nieces and nephews who are, (laughs) No, it was right off my, it's a script. It's a script. Yeah, it checks all the boxes. I know that's when when we were thinking about your book because it was just, it was incredible how on the nose (laughs) Mark Meadows was. Okay, so uh, shifting a little bit, uh, we have some questions kind of around like um, how can people wrestle um, with their own issues and and whiteness and kind of their place in society. So um, one of the questions actually comes um, from a a family, kind of the parenting perspective. And so white mom, black dad, kids are of color. And she's talking about her question is around like how. how did how, what any recommendations you have around navigating that space? Because she also doesn't want her kids to obviously feel resentment towards her. But then the conversations that she needs to have about around race with her kids being from, you know, a mixed race family. Do you have any thoughts around that? Those kinds of issues? So let me say there are, there are three top questions I get and some version of this one is one of them. Okay. And I, I just want to point out how deep that is mm-hmm. when people ask me for guidance about how to raise their children. So yeah. let's just, you know, slow that down and notice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm very sorry to say that she's not going to be able to protect her children from racism, right? Yeah. She can give them tools mm-hmm. to navigate it any more than I can inoculate my daughter who's white from sexism and mm-hmm. patriarchy, but mm-hmm. I can certainly help her navigate it. And probably the number one simplest thing I can say to such a deep question is for her to do her own work. And that as her consciousness is transformed, it becomes integrated into how she sees the world Mm. and how she will respond to supporting her child in navigating that. Mm. What you don't want is that, you know, we love you and you're, you know, you're special just the way you, and that's true. Yeah. But that ends up being a kind of colorblind. Like it is right. happening. Mm, you right. know, racism is 24, seven, 365 structured into everything. Mm-hmm. So how do we, how do we talk about that in ways that are age appropriate? Yeah. 
you know, and that um, there there is some research that shows that when children of color have some structural analysis, they actually do better mm. because without the structural analysis, they what they just come to is there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Mm. Right. But when I was like, oh, no, here, this is a system, and it, you know, kind of in the same way that I would try to have, have my daughter understand that. Yeah. Right. Um, and it would never, it wouldn't be just a one-time talk. It would be integrated across from day one, um, how I was thinking about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, there is a section on my website called resources for parents. Okay, great. And it's got some stuff there. Okay. Awesome. We'll add that into our show notes. So, uh, another question that came from a listener was this one about, uh, how to disrupt white supremacy without alienating white people who may not be ready to examine their own race privilege or if they they may be just starting to examine their race privilege so but we may need those progressive voices as allies so how do you how do you so, um, how do you do that <laughs> okay. right now for that person who's listening anybody has a similar question mm -hmm. you're going to I'm going to ask you to practice not getting defensive mm -hmm. Because yeah. what I'm going to say is that's the second of the three top questions I get. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I want that person and anyone else who has that question to imagine I'm looking at them in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask them a question. How would I help you see your complicity in white supremacy? Mm. How mm. would I give you feedback on your patterns of whiteness and white supremacy and yeah. white fragility. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to hold because I want you to notice how that question, there's a reason it's one of the top three. Mm -hmm. It presumes that it is not the person asking the question. Yeah. Um, but it's all about waking other white people up. And there's no way that I would um, assume that I could talk to the person who asked that question about their patterns. Mm -hmm. And day in and day out, I go into rooms full of woke or progressives, or they self-identified white people, mm -hmm. and that's their question. And when I name the whiteness and the patterns going on in the room, it doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so keep transforming yourself. Yeah. Keep mm -hmm. noticing how you want to distance yourself and externalize it. Mm -hmm. And having said that. Um, there are a few strategies. Mm -hmm. One is point the finger inward, not outward. Yep. So just share what you've come to understand. It's hard to argue with somebody's personal insights, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean they won't. But I think about it like this. I hope you shift as a result of what I'm about to say. But really, it's about um, how scary it is for me to say it and how important it is for me to say it. It's about me and my growth and my breaking with white solidarity. Mm -hmm. So I want to do that as strategically as possible. Mm -hmm. But keep remembering, this is for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. most yeah. white people do not break with white solidarity. Yes. We yeah. do not challenge one another. Um, and you want to practice building your stamina, mm -hmm. um, start talking about whiteness and racism and what you're learning about it with other white people. That's all you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> you will be put up against all your conflict avoidance yeah. patterns. Yeah. All you got to do. Yeah. 
Uh, well, so kind of a follow up with that, and maybe you kind of answered it. So one of the other questions actually from a person of color was, please make sure you guys talk about how um, what do you do with folks who already think that they're woke about these issues and already think that they're like moving on the spectrum? Notice that right there. Right. So here's here's one of the things I enjoy saying um, when I'm in front of a group. Um, some of the most obstructionist, gatekeeping, huh. undermining uh, white people are on equity teams. Oh, yeah. And involved in equity work. Um, that in no way certifies you. So the key is humility. Hmm. Right? And if you yeah. don't have humility, if you think it's not you, if you cannot tolerate that it could be you, um, then you are going to be the person that this person of color just asked that question about. Right, right. Right. It's, in some ways, it's just, what is the worst thing in the world, right? That someone might think you're racist. So let me give you mm-hmm. a heads up. I think all people are racist, yeah. including me. Yeah. So that dances <laughs> up. Take that, and yeah. now we can let go and start actually working on identifying how, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and appreciating when someone is willing to take the risk to help us see how, when they see it and we don't, yeah. given that that usually doesn't go well. Yeah. Right. Mm, and it's yeah. it's each of us who has made it not go well. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not getting that feedback, I have to ask myself, what have I conveyed to this person that they don't think they can actually talk to me about what they're seeing with me? Right. Yeah. Do you? Um, I couldn't articulate half of what I can articulate, and my learning is not finished. It never will be. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if I didn't make a thousand mistakes, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. the key is learning from your mistakes. Mm. And if you just spend all your energy deflecting the mistake, you're not going to learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that white people who lack humility are uniquely attracted to equity work <laughs> because they feel some need to? some unresolved issues within themselves? Or do you think that that the system of white supremacy just makes it so that mostly white spaces are ignorant to white privilege? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's certainly lots of white people who are not attracted to equity work. (laughs) You know, I mean, on any given group of white people working on the equity team, I'd say half of them, you know, you're kind of, oh boy, here we go. And half of them are really strong, right? It's not automatic that if you're on an equity team my point is it absolutely doesn't certify you right it doesn't mean your learning is over now you're in teaching mode right, <laughs> right. you need to be asking yourself <laughs> what's happening on this equity team right I, i'm always kind of unsettled by groups um who are doing the work or supposedly right their equity teams yeah. and they're not doing affinity work yeah mm-hmm Right. Like, well, where's the space where we work on our racism? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you kind of mentioned earlier one strategy for helping improve um, racial stamina. And I think we'll just kind of end with that question. Uh, we want to honor your time. And we're so thank you so much for sharing all of this. Thank with you. Us. We really appreciate um, it. Oh, you're so welcome. But can I share yeah. what I um, the, the top question that you probably yeah. have in your hands? Yes, absolutely. I was wondering if we were <laughs> actually. Ask I want people. white people to know this. <laughs> Um, patterns. Patterns are just really useful. And if you fall yeah. into the pattern, you fall into the pattern. Okay. Um, use this as, as research, as data yep. about you know, your, your, you know, moves, if you will. Hmm. And the number one question is, what do I do? Yeah. And I, I actually think that's a disingenuous question. Hmm. Hmm. 
I don't think most white people listening to this are going to do anything different. Ah, they're yep. just going to continue being nice and smiling and being friendly and thinking they're covered. Um, I, I mean, I, that has been my experience. I just want to be honest about yep, that. And, and if in saying that, that, that makes it hard for you to live with yourself. Well, good. Right. Yep. I mean, I want to live with you. But this kind of just hand that to me, just feed that to me. I mean, it's kind of mm-hmm. colonialist. It's also really transactional and capitalist too. Like here, I'll, can I buy this information from you? Sell it to me and then I'll be cured. And of course, I'm going to make sure I agree with what you sold me, right? Right, right. Well, no, I mean, because I feel perfectly qualified to determine whether what you have told me to do is legitimate or not. Um, You know, there's all those dynamics. But the main question I want to ask back is, how have you managed not to know? Uh, Yep. Mm. Um, It's 2019. Why would that be your question? How have you managed to be a full functioning, educated adult, probably a parent, digitally literate also, (laughs) (laughs) and not know what to do about racism? Uh, I mean, I mean, and and that's actually sincere. It's a challenging question, but it's sincere. You know, people of color have been telling us forever. The information's everywhere. You have to work to Mm. refuse that Mm. knowledge. That is a willful ignorance. It's not innocent i do not grant white people racial innocence Hmm. so what would you do about anything you gave a shit to know about you would (laughs) google it yes (laughs) right yes i mean okay so you know i'm just trying to you know get us moving here so um go on my website and there's 18 things 10 things um there's the uh leila saeed's white supremacy workbook i'm so glad Um, you brought that up i was actually going to ask you what you thought about that and and if you're right i I love her and i just took a class online class with her on white feminism and it was excellent Mm, um you know support the teaching of people of color she's being paid for for doing that teaching do Mm. not grab any person of color you can find Hmm. and grab onto them for them to do that teaching build Mm. That you need to build a trusting relationship, but there are plenty of people of color who have offered that teaching either voluntarily or, or to be paid for it. Yep. It's just we're in an amazing, exciting time, uh, and nothing is is more um, <laughs> growth enhancing for white people than this journey. So thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you so thank much you for so coming much on for coming. and chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend. You're welcome. <laughs> The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Listen to our other podcasts. Move to Tacoma. Nerd Farmer. Citizen Tacoma. Crossing Division. Flounder's B-Team. We Art Tacoma. And Taco Man. So we want to give a shout out to all of our listeners who contributed to the discussion today uh, from Facebook, from Twitter, all those great places. Absolutely. Uh, We would also like to introduce our next Read Less Basic Book Club book, which is... White Rage by Carol Anderson. So go to your local bookstore and get your copy right now. ASAP. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.